Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network of podcasts. I'm Stephen Hausman, an assistant professor of history at the University of St. Thomas and your host for today's interview. I'm speaking today with James Skillen. Dr. Skillen is an associate professor of environmental studies at Calvin University, where he also serves as director of the Calvin Ecosystem Preserve and Native Gardens. We'll be discussing his newest book, This Land is My Land, Rebellion in the West, which came out this past September with Oxford University Press. Welcome to the New Books Network, Jamie. Well, thanks so much for having me. I always like to begin my interviews by just hearing a little bit about the guests themselves. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in environmental studies as a uh, field? Well, I grew up on the East Coast mainly. And right after my sixth grade year, my family uh, did the obligatory national parks trip in the West, including places like Yellowstone and Grand Tetons. And I was immediately hooked. Uh, I vowed that I would be a park ranger or a National Geographic photographer, and I've failed on both counts. Uh, but after college, in where I studied environmental science, I worked seasonally for the San Juan and Rio Grande National Forests in South Central Colorado, um, where I really you know, got to see what federal land management was about. Uh, and that, that really brought my professional interests into it. Uh, I also have a lot of recreational interests in public lands. In fact, for my for our honeymoon, my wife and I hiked the Colorado Trail from Denver to Durango, and we later hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. And so my interests, both you know, professional and recreational, kept coming back to public lands and to questions about uh, what responsible public lands looked like or public lands management looked like. And I did my PhD in natural resources, but methodologically, that research was uh, and is grounded in history and law. And as I was casting about for a dissertation topic, I found stacks of books on the Park Service, the Forest Service, but I couldn't find a single uh, history of the Bureau of Land Management, uh, except one that had been produced by the agency. And so that made my research decision easy. And I later published that dissertation as the nation's largest landlord, the Bureau of Land Management in the American West. So environmental studies for me sort of grew out of these very specific interests in Western public lands and forests. Uh, you know, I was in high school and college at the time of the, you know, the owl wars of the Pacific Northwest. And uh, my research and teaching then kind of focus on at the intersection of ecology environmental history and law. And um, yeah, and pretty much uh, public lands in the American West. Uh, I now teach at Calvin University in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, Michigan only has about 12% federally owned land. And so one of my favorite things to teach is an annual field course that goes to California, Oregon, or Nevada. And I get to spend three weeks exploring some aspect of public lands management with students. And, you know, when I talk about some of the really intractable public land issues in the classroom, it's easy for students to disengage. I mean, they're intractable for a reason. We're not going to solve them in any final sense. And so I think students get discouraged. They, they might check out. But when you take students 
on a field course and I teach in undergraduates and you're talking with ranchers, environmentalists, county officials, federal employees, then the students can't look away and they really get hooked on these questions. And that to me is, you know, at the heart of environmental studies. You know, how is it that people relate to their landscape? Uh, how is it that ecological systems uh, mesh or don't mesh well with economic and political systems? And I really, yeah, I feel privileged to be able to uh, do work that I enjoy so much. Sounds like, uh, like me and many, many other Easterners, you uh, had the classic experience of, of visiting the West and just becoming fascinated with this, this kind of endlessly fascinating place, right? Absolutely. And even, you know, the simple fact, and this is what so many uh, who tell this story will say, you know, I grew up near Washington, D.C. I vacationed in Maine, and that's a 10 and a half hour drive that's pretty much suburban and urban landscapes. And so to me, uh, just being in Montana, eastern Wyoming, uh, where I used to live in Oregon, I mean, that sense of space is really so much different in the West than the East. And that sense of scale and immensity, uh, I just found really compelling. And how did you get interested in the topic of rebellion in the West and specifically right wing rebellion in the American West? I certainly, you know, am interested in rebellion of of either ideological stripe. So I I am interested in, you know, some of the eco-terrorism, uh, periods of heightened eco-terrorism in the West. Um, but I really I haven't studied that. I've been drawn for really a decade now to uh, trying to understand the conservative challenge to federal authority in the West. And for me, I think it's rooted uh, finally in stories. Uh, when I started research on public lands managed by the Bureau of Land Management, I was interviewing current and retired employees. And the stories I heard from them, uh, particularly, I mean, there were plenty of stories about success and plenty of stories about cooperation. But I was struck by the fact that every manager I talked to who had been in the BLM for more than a decade, had some story of being threatened or someone trying to intimidate them. And to me, again, having come from the East, it sounded like uh, I was hearing stories from an old West and an old, really an old Western, uh, like they were still working in a, in a lawless area. I remember one interview I did with a, a BLM manager uh, who uh, he had been a state director, but he his first job was right after the BLM was formed in 1946. He and one other employee were sent to manage all of eastern Oregon, so five million acres. And uh, he told me the story of he went out to talk with a rancher whose cattle were trespassing. And he warned the rancher that he was going to have to you know, issue him a citation if he didn't stop. And he said, the rancher pulled out a pocket watch and he said, you see this watch? It's mine. And that means I'll do whatever I want with it. And he smashed the rock on a, or the watch on a rock. And then he said, you see this land around here? It's mine and I'll do what I want with it. And I, I said to the BLM retiree, well, what'd you do? I mean, how did you deal with this guy who just told you he wouldn't listen? 
And he said, well, what do you think I did? I was alone <laughs> out on the range. I went back to my office. I noted the event in my journal and moved on with my business. Um, and I, you know, I kept hearing that and also stories of um, serious threats uh, all the way up to, uh, I spent a while uh, tramping around the uh, Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument in Southern Utah, which President Clinton created in 1996. And, you know, stories I was hearing there from the late 90s about threats, about violence, um, you know, it just seemed increasingly that this was, if you were, if you worked for the Forest Service or BLM, this was going to be a part of the job and maybe a very small part, but a part nonetheless. Uh, and I think that the idea for this book of trying to make some broader sense of it really started in, uh, 2014 during an armed standoff in Nevada at the Bundy family ranch. And, you know, this was an event where the family had called for support, had asked people to come and protect them from the federal government, which was about to remove their cattle from public lands. And the people who came were everything from, you know, gospel singers to armed militias. And what ensued was an armed standoff with rifles drawn. And uh, while that was going on, I got a call from a reporter who was is British at the time he was living in New York City. And he wanted to know about the BLM. And he said, Jamie, my first question is, is this really happening? Uh, and sure, it was mock incredulity, but his, uh, you know, this sense that if you come from the UK, if you're living on the East Coast, it just seemed bizarre to him that militias, unorganized militias, could threaten uh, deadly violence against federal law enforcement and win. Uh, the BLM ended up backing down. Um, so I started thinking really about an audience of one. How could I explain to that reporter why what happened at the Bundy Ranch made some kind of sense or why, you know, it wasn't a complete uh, aberration in the West? And then when the 2016 occupation of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge took place, uh, that's when I thought, all right, this keeps happening. I really need somehow to try to explain not just why we have armed occupations, uh, that in some ways, maybe that's easier to explain, but why is it that conservatives across the country, including you know, people like Rand Paul or Sean Hannity or, you know, even um, presidential candidate Marco Rubio uh, seemed so sympathetic with right wing extremists who are trying to take federal land. And uh, once I started then in 2016, I just got pulled more and more into the reality that what I had seen, what we'd all seen at the Bundy family ranch at the Malheur Refuge wasn't just, you know, a sort of Western phenomenon, but that it was tied into a broader political history in the last 40 years of conservative politics. And that story that you told about uh, the, the the BLM agent and uh, the watch, the the book that we're discussing here is is just full of of fascinating and you know a bit frightening stories like that as well. So if if you like that story, you'll love the book. Right. Um, 
So speaking of, let's get into the book a little bit. And you open the story that you tell here about the American West by by talking about three ranches that during three different points in time and in three different places in the West. Can you tell us about these three ranches and about what their stories tell us about the American West, about land use and about rebellion in the West? Well, I, uh, you know, these two opening chapters of the book are built on these three stories. And there are a number of reasons for it. One, I mean, it's inter- I think these are interesting stories. I hope people will be drawn in. It's also, though, because stories capture levels of complexity and nuance that sort of, you know, maybe a, a more uh, analytic prose simply can't. And so uh, I present these stories really uh, of ranches that encapsulate a great deal of what's happened uh, in the last 40 years. Uh, the ranches, and I'll describe them briefly, they're all in Nevada. Uh, one is the Bundy Family Ranch, uh, which is in southern Nevada, just north of Las Vegas. Um, another, which is uh, sort of mid-state, uh, the Pine Creek Ranch. And finally, the Dan Ranch. And both the Bundy Ranch and the Pine Creek Ranch, the families who own them, are of European descent. The Dan Ranch... Uh, I included because it also opens up an entirely different set of issues that are critically important with the public lands. Uh, This is a ranch owned by the Dan sisters, the Western Shoshone tribe. And uh, so that some of their claims about the land and some of their disagreements with the BLM really are rooted in a very different legal framework. They're rooted in uh, 19th century treaties. They're rooted in what I take to be pretty, pretty horrific uh, mistreatment in the 20th century, um, and so they they kind of present, yeah, maybe a different set of issues. Uh, the what holds what they all have in common is that all three families ranched through the the 40 year period that I'm writing about. So all three of them were ranching at the time of the Sagebrush Rebellion of 1979 through what I'm calling the War for the West in the 1990s, and then the most recent rebellion. And if there are two things that I really hope people get out of this, um, the first is I do find it deeply troubling that the families who own two of those ranches, uh, the Dan family and the Hage family, that owned the Pine Creek Ranch, uh, they took their disagreements with the federal government to court. Uh, They went through administrative process. Uh, They hosted some peaceful uh, protests against the federal government. But essentially, they played by the rules even while challenging them. And those two ranches were largely shut down because, in fact, they don't have legal claim to the land. The third ranch, the Bundy family ranch, um, had the least claim. I mean, I think the the least justified claim to the land. And they largely dispensed with the courts, with government altogether. They turned to threats of violence. And of the three ranches, the Bundy ranch is the one still in operation. So I think that's a, a, a troubling and cautionary tale that we seem to be living in a time when, uh, as we've seen with recent events, where the idea of direct and potentially violent opposition to the government is showing success 
And that's a dangerous lesson. The other thing I hope people will see in looking at these ranches is that the conflicts that we hear about with public lands in the West are rooted in, you know, very complex history of land law. Um, I think if if you use a PC, because um, I don't know anything about Mac operating systems, you know, you can think of federal land law as an operating system, as the Windows system. It's it's massive. It has code dealing with all kinds of things, and at times that code is internally contradictory, and the program crashes. Um, so I do want people to see that while I think, say, the Bundy family is misguided in their claims, uh, that in fact they don't have a legal claim, I do want people to appreciate why they think they have a claim. In other words, what ultimately are the roots of their claim that they have a moral and legal right to use this land as they see fit? And uh, with that, you know, I think of uh, when I think about scholarship, and particularly when I think about writing you know, about people in the West, particularly those I disagree with, uh, to me, the highest virtue in scholarship would be critical empathy, uh, that I really am trying to see why this makes sense to another person. And if the stories I tell could, could give people just a little bit of that, um, you know, whether you are uh, really support the Hage family, uh, I hope that you'd have some gain some critical empathy about the role of the federal government and what drives them. Uh, I suspect more readers will be sympathetic with the federal government, but I do want them to see, gain some empathy for these families, what they've gone through and why they think that they have a claim. You mentioned uh, federal land ownership in the American West. Uh, I like actually, I really like that uh, uh, the, the metaphor that you use of, of of the federal government's land ownership as sort of a, an operating system for the American West. And you know, to not to carry that metaphor too too far, but if that's the case, then the Bureau of Land Management is one of the sort of the the, the crucial programs or the crucial bits of software to that operating system. Can you give us a little bit of background on the BLM and why it has become so controversial in agency in some parts of the West over the course of the, the, the 20th and now 21st centuries? Sure. That I have to go back before the Bureau of Land Management and uh, talk about the public domain lands. And these were the lands that the federal government acquired through purchase, through conquest, through treaty. Uh, and, and that was essentially most of the nation. I mean, at one point or another, the federal government owned 1.8 billion of the 2.3 billion acre nation that we have today. And uh, early federal land law, um, you know, already in the late 18th century, but throughout the 19th century, uh, federal land law was entirely focused on disposing of or getting rid of that land. And so whether it was granting land to states to help them with infrastructure and education, giving land to wagon and railroad companies to fund infrastructure projects, um, whether it was selling land and resources to individuals or in the case of laws like the Homestead Act in the 1860s, actually giving land to people. So the goal here was um, move the land from federal ownership to private and state ownership 
And for the federal government, the benefits were that it could generate revenue to pay off war debt and other things, but also that uh, it encouraged settlement. And that was critical because that's what you know really fortified the United States' claim to those lands. Uh, you know, most listeners probably know the uh, early, well, most of the national parks and forests by acreage were reserved out of that public domain land. So we have, you know, Yosemite in the 1860s, Yellowstone in 1872. Um, all of those parks and forests west of the Mississippi were taken out, you know, people would say out of the public domain. And Congress said, these are re- these are lands for which we have a national purpose, and they're going to be managed to achieve that national purpose. So for the parks, it was recreation and scenery. For the forests, it was a continuous flow of timber and protecting water quality. Eventually, the uh, wildlife refuges and the National U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which is really about protecting migratory birds initially. Um, So think of those as the reserved designated lands uh, about which Congress had said, these are ours as a nation. But there was still everything else. I mean, there were still, you know, five, 400 and I would have to look it up, but 460, 480 million acres of land um, that were just public domain. They were still open to mineral entry, to homesteading, to all of these other laws. And at the time, those lands were managed by the General Land Office. Uh, it was it had been going since 1812, and its only job was to survey and get rid of land. And then uh, for a brief period of time, there was a grazing service that managed uh, livestock grazing. When Congress, I'm sorry, when President Truman created the Bureau of Land Management in 1946, uh, the Bureau wasn't given any new laws, any new responsibilities. President Truman simply merged the General Land Office and this young grazing service that was itself at the center of heated controversy in the West. Uh, in fact, the year that the BLM was formed, Congress slashed the grazing service's budget by about 80% because they were upset that the grazing service was regulating ranchers. So the agency is born into conflict, um, and the land it begins to manage in 1946 is land that counties, states, and individuals had been using as an open commons you know, for more than a century. So you had ranches that were and remain dependent on that public domain land. Uh, you had millions of uh, mining claims that people had legally staked, but also had legally never been required to tell the federal government about. So all of these claims were to the government invisible, but scattered all over the land. You had roads uh, that the government didn't know about. Um, So essentially, think about this as land that was being used and being claimed by counties, states, and individuals. And from the beginning, then, every time the Bureau of Land Management, uh, you know, asserted its legal authority uh, in ways that conflicted with those interests, every time it sort of pursued maybe professional management, so making decisions not on the basis of users' interest, but on the basis of 
say range science, every time it did that and it, and it reached for control of those lands, it was bumping into and pushing back well-established users. Um, and then the, the other key thing is that whereas, you know, a national park is typically, they might have a few small inholdings, but a national park is a discrete unit. Our national forests in the West are similar. There's a boundary and almost all the land inside of it is federally owned. The Bureau of Land Management's public lands are this amazing mosaic across the American West. There are places where they own hundreds of square miles or manage hundreds of square miles of contiguous federal land. But there are also a lot of places in the West where the BLM might manage a 40-acre parcel in the middle of a private ranch. Or it, there are places, particularly in Wyoming and Oregon, where the agency is responsible for managing literally every other square mile of land. And so even in the, the sort of layout of its landscape, it's sort of inextricably linked to all of these other uh, land use interests. And then finally, what I'd say is that if you think about uh, the situation in 1946, the land that the BLM managed still was largely that no one but those Western counties, individuals, really wanted. Uh, in fact, Herbert Hoover uh, tried to offer to give all of the remaining public domain lands to the states in 1930, and they all said, no, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, so it inherited this land that people didn't want, but increasingly over the 20th century, as environmentalists who had been focusing on parks and forests started to focus on the BLM, you know, all of a sudden this land has become today land that a lot of people want and a lot of very different people want. Um, I, I realize that's a lot, but I should still add one more thing, which is critical politically, which is that uh, the Park Service had and continues to have an incredibly strong lobby in Washington. The Park Service has political support. The Forest Service, though controversial, really had significant support from the timber industry up until the 1990s. The Bureau of Land Management from its inception has never had a supportive constituent constituency. So it, it is sort of seen as um, yeah, a source of conflict, whether you are uh, someone in resource development or someone in interested in species protection. Um, so it hasn't had the kind of ballast to really assert itself in the same way that the other, at least the Park Service and the Forest Service have. I will add one more thing, even though I said the last thing was one more thing, but that, you know, the agency also has the smallest budget per acre and per employee. Um, and so it, it really, uh, it finds itself, you know, a weak position in the West. Now, perhaps ironically, uh, if we go to the 1990s and up into the 21st century, um, the Forest Service really struggled when it lost its constituency, when it's lost its kind of accepted autonomy. And it really had to begin to uh, collaborate with land users. And it turns out the BLM, uh, for all of that history, uh, maybe feeling like they you know, were, were second class to the Forest Service, the BLM is actually much better trained 
for the kind of politics around uh, federal lands in the West, or at least it has longer period of training than I think the Forest Service did. So if this is uh, not a particularly new story, if, this, if the history of, of, the, of the BLM and, and, and a federal land management in the West goes back so far, what happens in the 1970s? What changes in the 1970s that sparks what, what historians and, and scholars call the Sagebrush Rebellion? And how is this rebellion part of the Reagan Revolution and the rise of American conservatism? Can you tell us that story a little bit? I'll be delighted to. It's uh, the Sagebrush Rebellion, which is typically marked as erupting in 1979 in the Nevada State Legislature. Uh, you know, any any movement, uh, you know, can't be traced back to a single cause or root. But if you want to look at the most significant driver of this rebellion, and then I'll explain what it was. It was uh, changes in the 1970s that followed kind of the, the decade of environmental legislation. Um, if the BLM's land had st was still open to entry, it was still public domain land. Um, but increasingly, environmentalists were turning to public land issues and pressuring the BLM. And in 1976, Congress passed the Federal Land Policy and Management Act, which it didn't it didn't suddenly change the BLM's management. But what it did was it recognized or formalized things that were already happening. So it wasn't until 1976 that Congress said the public domain lands will remain in federal ownership in perpetuity. Everyone kind of knew that. But in 76, Congress said, that's it. This is now permanently federal land. And in doing so, Congress also repealed a good deal of land disposal legislation. Uh, in 1976, and this is critically important, uh, Congress extended the Wilderness Act to public lands managed by the BLM. From 1964 to 1976, you know, the Park Service, the Forest Service, Fish and Wildlife Service were identifying potential wilderness areas. Congress was establishing them, but always the public lands were a separate, uh, in a separate class. They, they remained up until 76, you know, legally, they remained kind of natural resource development lands. And so in 76, when Congress, A, uh, identified permanent ownership, B, extended the Wilderness Act to public lands, and C, basically gave the BLM a mandate identical to that of the U.S. Forest Service, which is professional, sustained yield, multiple use management. Um, that act passed in 76 was implemented by the Carter administration, which already did not do well with Westerners. And um, there was this feeling that the entire landscape, legal landscape and management landscape had changed and that the federal government was turning its back on long accepted practices. So ranchers in particular felt that they had been moved from the top of the public of the multiple use hierarchy sort of down to the bottom. And I, I think the reason I emphasize uh, that is that what we really saw in 1979 was a challenge to federal authority that was led by Westerners who had a material interest in federal lands and resources and were struggling to regain control of them. 
Um, and I should add, and it might be shocking to some people to know that uh, this was an entirely bipartisan affair. In the Nevada State Legislature, uh, it was the the Sagebrush Rebellion legislation was co-sponsored by something like 80% of the legislature, both Democrats and Republicans, uh, because their interest was their state's um, control of federal lands. Uh, the Sagebrush Rebellion took a few forms, but in the West, most states, state legislatures passed some kind of legislation or at least debated legislation saying that the states were the rightful owners of the public domain lands within their boundaries. And they demanded that the federal government turn title to those lands over to the states. Uh, in fact, I don't think the Sagebrush Rebellion legislation Nevada passed was ever repealed. Uh, it's also just never been acted on or uh, really adjudicated. Uh, and so the rebellion, uh, they were demanding state ownership. And the way it was couched is that this was a constitutional issue. This was a Tenth Amendment issue that all powers not granted to the federal government were reserved to the states. It was an issue about, um, you know, the equality of the states that Nevada at the time uh, was probably, oh, about 88% federally owned, uh, whereas, you know, eastern states had this light federal hand. And so uh, in one way or another, they demanded control of the land. Um, the Reagan revolution uh, and President Reagan himself uh, campaigned uh, saying he was a sagebrush rebel. He would be the sagebrush rebel president. Um, but Reagan's genius was that um, his promise to those in the West, I'll get the federal government off your backs. I'll, I'll decrease the federal government's regulatory power. Um, you know, you'll have control of these lands again, was the same message he was saying to conservatives in other parts of the country who were frustrated with uh, federal, uh, the federal administrative state and the federal government's regulatory powers, but for different reasons. So in the Southeast, uh, there was real focus on forced integration or desegregation of uh, schools. You had throughout the East a growing frustration with workplace safety regulation. You had uh, among conservative Christians, you had frustration that the federal government was prohibiting prayer in schools. The federal government was uh, making abortion legal. And so Reagan's genius was recognizing that though people were angry about different things, they were frustrated with the same cause of them. And so Reagan really helps bring these Western land issues into a national conversation about how do we reduce the scope and the impact of, the, of federal authority and devolve power back to the states. And as he came into power, uh, you know, he was elected in 1980, and it's right around then that we see a huge infrastructure of conservative organizations emerge. So from 1978 to 82, um, you know, my guess is most of the conservative think tanks, foundations, um, you know, public interest law firms that you've heard of had their origin in that period. This is everything from the Federalist Society, um, you know, to um, even on, on the religious side, focus on the family, family rights council. Um, 
And so it's a coming together of conservatives who are, you know, seeking to restore America to an earlier period, whatever period that is. And Westerners, what Reagan did was invite them into that movement. Um, It turns out that Reagan had no intention of giving those lands to the states, but he also understood that that wasn't the real demand. And so uh, President Reagan pretty much silenced the Sagebrush Rebellion by 1982, not by giving the states title to the land, but simply by giving the states and the counties much greater say over how those lands were managed. Uh, Reagan's first interior secretary, James Watt, uh, recounts going to the Western governors and saying, look, this land is yours. Take it. Uh, And he kind of chuckles that the governors uh, hadn't heard someone say that before. And so for the Western governors, county officials, um, you know, that, that really is what they wanted. They just didn't want to be pushed around by bureaucrats and environmentalists from the East. And so their real demands were met by the Reagan administration. And the second rebellion that you describe is one that you call the War for the West, which in some ways is a continuation of the the Sagebrush Rebellion, but in some ways it's also its its own kind of different beast, right? So can you tell us a little bit about the history of that war, its implications, and maybe what it looked like on the ground in some places? I I use that title. I get that from uh, a Newsweek article uh, calling it the War for the West, and that phrasing war for the West or war against the West, war on the West, became uh, fairly popular among Republicans uh, who were you know, seeking to roll back federal power. Um, and it is, as you say, a continuation of the Sagebrush Rebellion in the sense that uh, there was once again a shift in federal land management. Uh, the Forest Service and the Bureau of Land Management were increasingly applying an ecological lens to their management. Uh, This was the rise of uh, ecosystem management. And so uh, ranchers in particular were seeing uh, changes in the number of cattle they could graze, in the terms of their permit. Uh, And so there really was this, once again, a material conflict over material interests in these lands and resources. Uh, That's what's similar. But there are a lot of ways in which the war for the West is different. And it's the turn that I would say brings us to today, to uh, the kind of rebellion that we've seen, let's say, on January 6th. And the difference differences, I should say, are that first, uh, this rebellion, though it had a, a Western focus, this rebellion had national support. Um, that infrastructure of conservative organizations I mentioned uh, was providing Western counties and states with resources to challenge the federal government. Um, The other thing is those public land issues had been woven into a larger conservative coalition. And so it was linking public land issues with a number of other constitutional issues. Um, As odd as it sounds, uh, it was directly linked to Second Amendment issues and gun rights. Uh, And this is a period where really that that insurrectionist idea of the Second Amendment took hold. I mean, in the 1980s and 1990s, that idea that 
the founders gave us the Second Amendment so that we would have guns to use against government if it ever became tyrannical. Uh, it also was uh, very much argued as a matter of the Fifth Amendment, of private property rights. And so even though there were states' rights issues, those weren't, that wasn't the rhetoric that really galvanized national support in the Republican Party to cut federal regulation on public lands. Those galvanizing issues were the ones that everyone in the country dealt with. Um, you know, not that everyone is concerned about the Second Amendment, but that, you know, it applies to someone in the East equally as it does to someone in the West. The same with private property rights. Um, and so it also is the case that this uh, war for the West, uh, because of that broad support, was well-funded. Um, it was well-communicated and organized. And uh, part of what had happened is Republicans and conservatives broadly were a little disappointed, or not a little, were disappointed that the Reagan administration had not really rolled back government. And the George H.W. Bush administration took a much more moderate turn. And so, interestingly, the War for the West erupted during a Republican administration when President Bush was talking about um, you know, biodiversity. President Bush was talking about uh, New World Order and international governance, uh, and things that really a number of conservatives around the country thought was taking us in the wrong direction. And so as it moved into the 1990s, uh, it's that broader national movement that gave us the Republican Revolution of 1994. And this is, you know, Newt Gingrich, uh, Dick Armey from Texas, John Kasich, uh, people who were saying uh, the president didn't have enough power to roll back government. It's time for Congress to do it. And they offered a contract with America. And central to that was we'll cut regulation, we'll cut the oppressiveness of the federal government, and we'll kind of repristinate government back to an earlier period in American history. And uh, I think you also, you can't understand its power without also recognizing the new media that helped give a common message around the country. So this is, in the 1990s, the rise of, you know, bias cable news. It's the rise of, you know, the early stages of the internet as an organizing tool. And so really, this is where public lands become inextricably part of the Republican anti-regulation agenda um, and what I would see as anti-governmentalism for people around the country. And the third rebellion that you describe in the book is uh, a 21st century rebellion that you call the Patriot Rebellion. What defines this particular rebellion? And how is the story of the Bundy family, who you begin the book with, how is it part of this latest rebellion too? As a family, they're kind of woven throughout this book. They are. And they, uh, you know, I, I certainly don't want to put uh, responsibility or credit, depending on your perspective on the family, but they really do illustrate a lot of the developments and kind of capture a good deal of what's at the heart of the Patriot Rebellion. Uh, when I look back at the Sagebrush Rebellion, the War for the West, you know, the common themes were a particular idea of America 
and nostalgia for an older, simpler time when we had small government. Uh, there was more individual autonomy. And then in the 1990s, I mentioned we added this uh, insurrectionist idea of the Second Amendment, that uh, when government finally becomes so tyrannical uh, that we can't work through it to make change, then it will be time to use arms against the government. Now, in the 1990s, uh, a new kind of repackaged or rebranded militia movement emerged. Um, in the 70s, militias were mainly kind of explicitly racist um, or just uh, anarchist. They were trying to build Aryan utopias up in Idaho and other parts of the West. But in the 1990s, a new militia formed, and they were not explicitly racist. Um, they were saw themselves as defenders of the Constitution. Um, and what made them different from mainstream Republicans like Newt Gingrich wasn't their political ideology. It was their perspective on how far the country had fallen into disarray, or it was their sense of just how serious and dangerous our current, their situation in the 1990s was. Uh, so it was the militias who really embraced uh, a lot of conspiracy theories, well, that just sound crazy. Uh, and I, if you go to testimony from militia leaders in Congress in 1995, uh, you know, you'll just read these, the lists of, well, it's, you know, the federal government is building death camps in the middle of the country to um, kill citizens. The federal government's going to declare martial law and disarm all Americans. That the federal government has weather tampering machines it's going to use to uh, create droughts and famines. That the federal government has essentially already agreed to the United Nations and the Russians that communists can come and take over our country. And so, you know, these were people who believed in a kind of had a libertarian view of government. But they believed that the situation was so dark that they were going to need to defend themselves violently. Uh, at that congressional hearing I mentioned in 1995, the Republicans who were uh, holding the hearing, one, tripped over themselves to appreciate the patriotism of these groups. Uh, so they were in one sense sympathetic. But, you know, the Republicans were also incredulous about all of these conspiracy theories. You know, they kept asking him for evidence and, you know, saying these conspiracies weren't true. So in the 1990s, you have the, the militias and other kind of extremists that were still on the fringes of conservative circles. Um, what we have in the Patriot Rebellion starting in 2009 is one of the key factors is a growing number of people begin to agree that the state of our country is so desperate that incremental change through Congress, through, uh, you know, electing a new president was inadequate. That what we needed was some more fundamental, perhaps political revolution that would destroy government as we had it and allow us to rebuild something that was, you know, going back to its original uh, blueprints in 1787. Um, and so the, the Patriot Rebellion had two parts. I mean, there was the Tea Party, uh, that it was a little more 
or mainstream. And then the Patriot Movement, which I think of kind of as the armed wing of the Tea Party. Um, and so you had a growing number of Americans who believed uh, things were desperate, that we have to retake our country from the liberals who had, you know, captured it. And you also had in this period, whether it's cable news people, leaders like Sean Hannity uh, or Glenn Beck, but you also had the rise of social media. Now, more and more people could come to a common understanding of how grim the situation was um, and the kinds of drastic measures that were needed. Throughout this, uh, if, you know, if you would go to Tea Party rallies, uh, if you would you know, listen to Glenn Beck, the number of times people mentioned, referenced the American Revolution is remarkable. Um, I mean, this, it, it has to be another 1776, they'd say. Uh, and I, as a quick aside, when Trump was elected in 2016, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a staunch libertarian. And I said, you know, you probably voted for Trump, but how could you? He's not a libertarian. And the friend said, no, he's not. He said, but Trump has a case of dynamite and a box of matches. And that's exactly what this country needs. Uh, I'm not saying that's representative of everyone in the Tea Party, but I think it does capture this idea that the time for inter incremental change in traditional politics is over. We need to, to kind of burn the corrupt government down and rebuild it. And, you know, that has only increased from 2009 to the present um, with the rise of QAnon. And you listen to some of the um, conspiracy theories, and it's in, as I hear them, it's almost as if the horror that we imagine has to get worse and worse in order to justify uh, a level of revolution that becomes more and more extreme. So, you know, Democrats aren't just wrong. Uh, you know, the idea is some of them are pedophiles and cannibals. Uh, and so I really do think the most significant aspect of, of the Patriot Rebellion is that uh, increasingly apocalyptic view of where we are as a nation. The one other thing that I want to add, because it's, it's incredibly important, is that the Patriot Rebellion reflects a kind of popular constitutionalism that allows someone to be both pro-constitution, see themselves as defending the constitution and as trying to burn down the government. So, uh, you know, constitutional anti-governmentalism. And the way it, it works is the notion that, uh, I mean, it's a kind of fundamentalist reading of the constitution, that it's a document that any true patriot can read and understand its clear meaning. And formally, that idea that the Constitution ultimately has to be interpreted by the people, not necessarily by the courts. And so you're, you're seeing in the Tea Party and the Patriot Movement, you know, increasingly a reading of the Constitution through which most of government is seen as fundamentally illegitimate and fundamentally unconstitutional. And so that's part of what justifies a more extreme reaction from people claiming that they're patriots. And after all, they're, you know, waving the American flag as they're storming the Capitol. Uh, how is it that you love the country and hate the government? Well, it does have to do with this idea that I have the authority 
to interpret the Constitution. And as I read the Constitution, this government is illegitimate. I know that that historians and scholars of, of most stripes really are kind of loath to make uh, predictions. But what do you think, what do you see as the future of Western rebellion of the kind that you describe in the book? What will it look like? I mean, sort of a ridiculous question to ask, but is this a problem of the past? Or do you foresee similar uprisings against government land management and related issues in the years to come? Where do things stand today? And where might we be headed in the future? Well, what I will do is not uh, predict a future, but I mean the future, but uh, predict a future that I think is entirely possible. Um, and then there are all kinds of variables that that might take us in a different direction. Um, you know, with the way publishing and editing works, I finished this book, oh, uh, probably at the, the end of uh, 2019 or maybe even mid-2019. Um, and at that point, I titled the conclusion, Wither the Next Rebellion. And, you know, I, I thought about some of the dynamics and I thought, um, you know, the the forces uh, behind some of these violent or potentially violent uprisings were now so well integrated into a mainstream political coalition, there's the Republican Party, that to me it seemed inevitable that there would be um, more threats of violence and more violence. Uh, and, you know, one of the things I was watching and I, I remain deeply concerned about is uh, a movement called the constitutional sheriffs. And these are sheriffs, they're throughout the country, but um, many in the West who have become convinced that under the constitution, they are, the highest, since they are the highest elected official in their counties uh, for interpreting law, that they are the final arbiters of what's constitutional and what isn't. And so these constitutional sheriffs have often pledged not to uphold federal law, uh, certainly not to enforce federal law that they personally believe is unconstitutional. Uh, this has come up a lot with any kind of uh, gun restrictions whether it's Washington or Utah. Um, and so, you know, what I'm looking at is the degree to which that kind of anti-governmentalism is not just mainstream in the sense of, um, you know, it's, it's not f completely fringe, but that in fact, many of the people holding this or some of the people holding these views are the very people who are, have responsibility to enforce and shape the law. So I really thought this was, you know, it was so woven into the landscape, political and otherwise, that, um, yeah, more, some kind of more rebellion was on the rise. So, of course, when the 2020 election happened, and I look back over, you know, the months of effort to discredit the election results, the insurrection at the Capitol, um, you know, I, I thought to myself, I shouldn't be surprised. I still was. You know, I was surprised that maybe it happened so fast that it uh, was as violent, let's say in the case of the insurrection, as it was. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm watching pretty carefully to see how uh, the Biden administration's people in the Department of Interior and Agriculture are, you know, changing some of the uh, policies and management in the West. But I certainly think that 
they're going to be aggravating uh, changes, things like uh, reducing mining, particularly fossil fuel extraction. But I also think that, um, you know, throughout the West, our current politics are such that, uh, you know, federal land managers who work in, alone or in small groups uh, out in remote areas are going to have to be extremely careful. And I also think that the degree to which um, an opposition to federal lands has become, uh, I mean, really, it's become Republican Party platform. So the platform in 2016 for the party included a commitment to pass legislation that would expedite the transfer of land from the federal government to the states and the, the counties or the states and individuals. So I, I do think that, uh, you know, some in the West will depend on party control of Congress, of, um, you know, governorships. But um, I also just think that we're at a point where any symbols of federal authority are going to invite opposition. And the extremism that is part of that opposition, certainly not everyone, uh, is just bound to flare up. And I think it's going to be a, a frustrating time and potentially a dangerous time to work for the federal government. And finally, Jamie, I know that this book has not been out for very long, but I always like to end my interviews by getting a preview of what uh, uh, what my guests are working on next. So is there a project that you've been working on since completing this book? Uh, working on is generous. Uh, that I haven't made progress, but uh, the, I have two book projects that I've started, at least uh, in concept. And the, uh, the one that grew out of this is uh, I'm working on a history, still taking shape, but of national monuments. So, you know, the sort of definitive book on national monuments written by Hal Rothman was written and published in 1989. And not only do I think there there are different ways to frame it than he did, but you know a lot has happened in the national monument landscape since 1989. Not least of which, you know, many listeners know of Bears Ears National Monument and Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, both of which President Trump um, really shrank. I mean, he cut both of them in half. Um, so some of these are controversial, um, and I'm I'm picking that up. But there's there's another thing about national monuments that are are really interesting. They are there are 130 around the country, and though Congress has designated some, you know this is the one land reservation that a president can make without any hearings, without any consultation. Uh, literally, the president can just write a monument proclamation, and any land that's federally owned, the president can make a national monument. Um, the monuments also, the only restrictions for the president is they have to protect objects of scientific or historic interest, and they have to be the minimum size necessary to uh, protect those resources. And so when I look around the country, these national monuments as a category are this kind of you know snapshot of uh, American values, things that we care about. And because they didn't have to go through lengthy congressional hearings and compromise, um, I think they provide this 
I mean, it's kind of micro history of preservation. And the National Monuments range, it's everything from, uh, I think it's in Brooklyn, there's a National Monument uh, where during construction, excavators found uh, the mass graves of both uh, former slaves and freed slaves, I think 400 in this location. And so that's declared a national monument. In Birmingham, there's Civil Rights National Monument. Uh, but you also have uh, monuments that were designated to protect archaeological ruins, monuments like Misty Fjords in Alaska or Cascade Siskiyou National Monument in Oregon that were created for to protect biodiversity or natural scenery. So I'm excited because it it sort of lets me, it gives me a small enough boundary that is a category national monuments, but really to think through the breadth of preservation work in this country. And then, of course, I think the other benefit is um, whether or not I get to the one in Guam, uh, I think I, sh I should probably travel to as many of these as possible. And that just sounds like good research. Definitely one of the perks of of the job. And that National Monuments yeah. Project sounds like a, a worthy and indeed uh, a necessary one. And I immediately think about how so many national monuments, and you, you can correct me if I'm wrong about this, but I, I'm pretty sure a lot of them have eventually become national parks. So there's this sort of interesting pipeline between uh, federal or uh, uh, yeah, federally, federal ownership from one category to the next that, that might be worth uh, thinking about as well. Yeah, in fact, I think... Uh... It's they if for a long time. It's not the the case anymore. But for a long time, uh, yeah, the monument designation was a way station to become right. a park. And uh, one of the early ones was uh, President Roosevelt designated the Grand Canyon National Monument, and it was about eight hundred thousand acres in size. And uh, some those opposed to it complained that you know wh what business did he have? designating 800,000 acres as a monument to protect an object of scientific interest and the monument's supposed to be the minimum size necessary. And Roosevelt said, well, the object of scientific interest is the entire Grand Canyon. So it needs to be this big. The courts upheld it. And of course, today, Grand Canyon's a national park. Um, and then, but I do have to add that the, I might get the numbers a little off, but uh, the record um, for that's well, thrown off a little bit, but in my mind, the record is still President Carter, who was upset with Congress for stalling on legislation that would settle land claims in Alaska. So he just sat down and designated 11 monuments totaling something like 52 million acres. And, um, and that was the impetus Congress needed to then take all that land and recategorize it as parks and forests, et cetera. Um, so it's also, as that would suggest, serve different tools at different times and will also let me think about sort of different moments in American politics. Well, when this book comes out, we'll have to have you back on the show to hear all about your travels. I would be delighted to join you again. James Skillen is an associate professor of environmental studies at Calvin University. His newest book is This Land is My Land, Rebellion in the West, which came out in 2020 with Oxford University Press. Thank you so much again for speaking with me today, Jamie. Thank you. 